job he's done. I want him to share a little bit. The psalmist said in 115 verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. I am overwhelmed at what God has done. It's really hard to believe. The fruit that you see has been produced by God through the hands of teenagers. Brochures, videos, efforts, airline tickets. It's all God using teenagers. Let me also commend you as a fellowship. You have caught the vision and you have embraced what God is doing in our lives and you've passed the baton freely to us. And we really appreciate for you believing in what God can do in the lives of young people. There's a lot of adults that say, oh, you can serve God when you're old. You know, you're the church of tomorrow, not the church of today. So thank you as well. Um, we appreciate your prayers and just your faithful giving. Thanks a lot. So Romania, the Philippines, Nicaragua, Scotland, um, Mexico. That's the last one on there. Pray for those countries in the next, uh, they're leaving in a week, and they'll be there for a month. Pray that a fire is set in the hearts of people in those countries. Um, Matt Ellison, who is our youth pastor, came, we, he was in our school of ministry. And uh, we just saw God's hand on his life uh, while he was a student in the school of ministry. And uh, through the last several years, since that vision of a school of ministry has been brought here, we have seen lots of people raised up for a variety of works. And so we always want to let you know, it's summertime now, that we're starting a new school of ministry coming up uh, at the end of this summer. And um, who knows what God will do if you want to set the time aside. Chris, where are you at tonight? Come on up here for just a minute. Chris Armijo is going to fill you in on... Um, what the School of Ministry will be like this year, uh, when it will start, and uh, how you can get more information. Thank you, sir. Well, we're excited. We, um, and the reason we're excited is we're excited for you and what God has called for you to do. We um, at the church believe that the equipping of the saints is done by the church, and the ministry of the, of the works of the Lord is done by those people who are equipped for the ministry. And that's what we want to do in the School of Ministry is take what God has gifted you as an individual with and to use it for his glory. And we want and we thank the Lord for the opportunity and the privilege it is to help equip his saints. We have just recently um, made a decision, uh, Skip has, about having a six-month school of ministry. It's going to make it a little bit more accessible for people to come to our school, um, and it's going to run for six months, followed by an international outreach. And the whole reason that we started this school is so that we could focus in on what God has gifted you with to help equip you, train you up within those gifts and that calling, and then to send you out. But not only to equip, equip you with your gifts and your callings, but also to equip you with character and, and discipline in Jesus Christ. So the way we set up the school is in a way that to help you understand the Lord. Some of the classes that we have this year are called the attributes of God when we're going to focus on 
some of God's characteristics, his attributes. We also are having a half an hour every morning for prayer and quiet time. We're going to introduce you to prayer and intercessory prayer and prayer for the nations. And then we're going to equip you with Old Testament surveys and church histories and all that kind of theme with our main emphasis for us to know God and then to make him known, taking him who we know and making him known to the world. So I challenge you that if God is calling you to please sign up with us, it's only six months long, what better to do with your life but to take six months to come and know God and say, God, here am I, equip me, shape me, and mold me into what you want me to be, and then to send me out to the field. So if you want information on that, please meet me at the information booth, and we will sign you up today. Thanks. All right. An update on where we're at with our schedule change. Um, as you know, we're not meeting on Thursdays anymore, but Wednesdays. And uh, we started a fourth Sunday morning service on Saturday night. And uh, it's, uh, it was really neat our first Saturday night. We had a lot of fun. And it was really encouraging to see how many people were involved and came out for that uh, meeting. Um, what we thought, however, is that since we had the size of crowd that we did Saturday, that certainly the three services would be opened up, there'd be space, and the um, crowding would be alleviated a bit. And, uh, well, it didn't work out that way. Uh, we just added several new people in one evening, basically. And um, we, we saw pretty much the same in terms of kids, adults, overflow, and the like. And so um, just an encouragement. Uh, if you do come, especially the second and third service Sunday morning, and you find, man, it's crowded, it's hard to get parking, and uh, hard to get my kids in, uh, Saturday night is a good alternative for that. It's a full-blown program for the kids, and uh, a lot of the parents that came you know, enjoyed that. They, that. There's more breathing room now, at least for a while. So um, Saturday night, 6.30, Sunday morning are our regular services. Tonight we're in the book of Deuteronomy, and we're in chapter 28. If you would turn there with me, that's what we are currently doing, going through the Bible and studying verse by verse in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, in just a moment, we're going to bow for a word of prayer. And uh, if you think, oh my, there's a Bible study here tonight. It's going to last an hour. I don't know if I can handle that. We ask you to make that decision before we start. If it's too much for you to handle a Bible study, then as we pray, if you would move into the foyer, into the overflow, because once we start, we don't want moving around. We ask you to stay in your seat and hold on to it, because um, moving distracts people. And God may be wanting to speak a certain truth to a heart. And just as that person is latching on to that truth, you could distract them by moving around, and we're sure that you wouldn't want to be used in that capacity. So uh, uh, we give you the warning beforehand so that when we bow and pray, uh, you can bow out and move to the back if you think you have to leave early. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness to us. Your mercies are brand new every morning. Every day when the sun rises, it's another reminder that you're the same, that you're faithful, that we can rely on you and count on you, and that when we encounter problems, you're the great problem solver. 
Father, we are grateful that tonight you have brought us together to learn. Not only to learn, not just information, but transformation, to change us, to transform the way we think, the way we live. And that comes line upon line, precept upon precept. You said in your word that we should study to show ourselves approved. We remember the Lord Jesus said, learn of me. And that never gets weary for those of us who love you. Studying the Bible is a joy because it tells us about your character and helps us to know you better. And to know you is to love you, and to love you is to want to serve you. So, Lord, we pray that you would just bring all of those factors together that we might grow. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you remember from last week, the children of Israel were to stand once they got over the Jordan River and stand on these two mountains, or representatives from the tribe stand on these two mountains that were close to each other, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, which is in the heart of the land, the valley which is down below in the area of Shechem or Samaria, and the Levites would be there, the priests, and the people would say amen to the blessings and to the cursings. Uh, You'll be blessed if you do this, and then you'll be cursed if you don't do these things. We left off uh, with Really, the blessings is a good way to end it last week, and unfortunately, we pick up with all of the cursings uh, in verse 15 of chapter 28. But let me draw your attention to verse 9. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, just as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and you walk in his ways, Then all peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. They were to be a special people, set apart for God, called by Him, representing Him. The name, I'm trying to figure out how I want to get into this, in verse 9, the Lord... Uh, And then again, the commandments of the Lord your God. And then in verse 10, the name of the Lord is a Hebrew tetragrammaton. means it's got four letters in it. Let me show you what I mean. Four letters called the Hebrew tetragrammaton, four consonants. Uh, We would translate it Y-H-V-H. It's Hebrew, though, is written from right to left, so it would be Yod, Che, Vav, Che. And it would be pronounced, we don't know. Either Yahweh, Yahweh, uh, Yevah, Yehovah, whatever. The reason we don't know is because they would often, when they came to this name, simply say the name, uh, or they would say Adonai, another term. They wouldn't say God's name that he gave at Mount Sinai because the Jews thought, The name of God was too sacred. Now, there's a lot of people who make a huge issue out of God's name, Jehovah or Yahweh. Uh, This morning, I had a knock on my door. I thought it was just a neighbor kid. I was studying. And I opened the door, and it was two nicely dressed adults. 
with Bibles. Great. So they, she opened up her Bible and she started quoting, you know, these are the last days and this people will be lovers of money and haters of God and lovers of pleasure, da-da-da-da. And uh, I've had a little experience with them before. So I, and, and I knew how they introduced the, the spiel and how they go through it and scripture to scripture. And, and so she said, what do you think about that? I said, so far I agree with you. Oh, uh, and uh, do you have a religious background? I said, well, <laughs> I do believe in Jesus Christ. We believe in Jesus Christ. I said, I know that you believe in Jesus Christ, but I think we believe differently about Jesus Christ. You see, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We believe Jesus is the Son of God. And God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Well, that's where we have a difference, she said. I said, I know we have a difference there. And they are Jehovah's faithful witnesses, they call themselves. So... I said, just a minute, let me get my Bible. And uh, as soon as I said that, there was one young gal with the older one, and uh, the older one signaled to her friends across the street because, I, I don't know, to get some of the... As soon as I said, get my Bible, they thought, oh, we better get somebody else here. So they doubled up on the troops and uh, sent this young girl who was in training with the others not to be a part of it. She was definitely being mentored or trained on how to do this story to door evangelism. So I got my Greek New Testament. And I said, turn to John chapter 1. That's a good place to start. And so she turned to John 1, and, and I started kind of explaining it. And she said, okay, now, in the Greek. And she started telling me the Greek. And so I opened up my Greek New Testament, not to intimidate her, but I wanted to show her what I knew she was going to say and why it was wrong. So she kept saying the Greek says in the Greek this. So I I opened up my Greek New Testament. I said, well, then read that. She said, well, it's Greek. <laughs> I can't read Greek. I said, well, I can read Greek. I'm not a Greek expert. I'm not a scholar. But, and I, we read John 1, in arche ein halagas, kai halagas ein prastan theon. And she said, well... Theos, or God, is without the article. And any time a noun in Greek is without the article, it's an adjective. I said, well, I don't know where you learned that, but that's very wrong. When it's without the article, it gives emphasis as the subject rather than as the object. And it, you can't be any clearer. What John is saying literally is God was the Word rather than the Word was God. God was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and Theos, God, was the Word. And uh, she said, you've had this conversation before, haven't you, with witnesses? <laughs> I said, well, yes, I have. And I appreciate your zeal. But when you, in the name of God, go from door to door and say things that are that wrong about Jesus Christ, you know, uh, I, my antennas go up and I love to talk to you about it. And she said, well, rather than bantering us Jehovah Witnesses, I said, no, wait a minute. You knocked on my door. 
and I haven't raised my voice. I haven't been mean with you. You've brought up questions, and I've answered your questions in, in a very intelligent manner. I, and I'll, I'll discuss, I'll keep discussing these things with you. Well, now turn to Acts 8. Well, now turn to, you know, and she wanted me to turn. I said, before we turn to any other passages of Scripture, since you bring up a text, let's understand what that text means. Anybody can go text hopping and find what certain things uh, put a spin on them and, and try to lead me along into a, a mode of thinking. I, I know you could, anybody could do that. When you bring up a text, let's deal with it in language and in context. Well, she was getting a little frustrated, and she said, Well, you know that God's name is Jehovah. I said, well, not really. <laughs> I said, his name may be Jehovah, but, or it could be Yahweh or Yahweh, or I, you know, I went through the Tetragrammaton. Well, she was quickly trying to wrap up her Bible and say good day, and, uh, but she'd say, now, why do you guys make such a, a big deal about the name of Jesus? I said, well, I, again, I didn't bring it up. You came out of the blue saying it's, the name is Jehovah, not anything else but Jehovah, and you should always call him Jehovah. And now you're saying, why make a big deal about the name? You just made a big deal about his name. It was an interesting conversation. The truth is, how you pronounce the name is unimportant. The Jews didn't give us the pronunciation. We have the Tetragrammaton. We don't exactly know how they pronounced it. Probably it was Yahweh. That was probably how they was to be pronounced. But again, it was ineffable. They thought that they were unworthy to say it. But what God is saying is this. I am God. How you pronounce my name is irrelevant. I want you to be a people that reflect my name and my glory to all the earth. That is the real issue. That you will be known as a people of my name. That all peoples, verse 10, shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. So blessing upon blessing upon blessing to those who not only have the word, have the law, quote the law, quote the word, but do it. Obey him. As Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so the blessings were enumerated. And after each blessing, the people would say amen. And then in verse 15, we have now the curses on those who are disobedient. Uh, before we jump right in and continue in chapter 28, I want to give you just a little bit of where we are. We're at a, an important part. There, there's, a, uh, there's a transition about to take place. Chapter 28 ends one of Moses' speeches. Basically, Deuteronomy is a series of four talks that Moses has with a new generation on the plains of Moab. And he covers their past, their present, and their future. And so, on the plains of Moab, there was the first speech in chapters 1 through 4. The past is covered. This is who you are in relationship to what God has done for you in the past. And then there was a second speech, you remember, from chapters 5 through 26. The salient points of the law were given. And this is what God expects Israel to do in the present. This is the covenant that I have established with you in the present. 
The third speech, we're currently in that, chapters 27 and 28, is what God will do for Israel in the future upon their obedience or upon their disobedience, or I should say, when they disobey, not if. God, in fact, in chapter 28, predicts their disobedience. And then finally, and we may get into it tonight, sneak in a verse or two, uh, the fourth speech, what God can do for Israel through his covenant. What God can do through his covenant, as the covenant is given in a summary form in uh, chapter 29 and chapter 30. Um, you're going to notice something as we go beginning in verse 15 to the end of the chapter that, first of all, the curses are four times longer than the blessings. That's not a good sign. It's not a good sign because as we move into this chapter, God isn't fond of giving negatives, giving the curses. The reason it's four times as long is we're entering into prophecy. God is anticipating that his people will fail. God understands them. He understands their flesh. He understands they're weak. He understands that they will fail. He understands that they will flatly disobey, turn from him, and even follow after other gods. And he is warning them of the trouble that this will get them in. At first, it sounds like God is just saying, if you do this, if you do this, if you do this, this is what's going to happen. But then some amazing, gory details are given of their future. As if to anticipate, wow, this is really going to happen. It's not just a possibility, it is a reality. It is interesting to me how whenever we deal with Scripture, we're dealing with... Well, it's a divine document. I know that's a gross understatement. But because God is God, he can write history in advance. That's what prophecy is. He will predict the future in graphic detail as if it has already happened. It's as accurate as if it already has happened and you're writing about it after the fact. One of God's calling cards is predictive prophecy. One-third of the Bible is prophetic. Um, it has to do with prophecies about nations, about the nation of Israel, about individuals, about captivity, about Jesus Christ. A third is prophetic. It is God's calling card that would set him apart from every other god, false god. There is no other true god, and all other gods are false gods. And so in Isaiah chapter 46, God plainly declares without apology... I am God, and besides me there is no other. There is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that will take place. It's God's calling card. And so much prophecy is about Jesus Christ. We've seen in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, that the spirit of uh, uh, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And there's incredible, in this chapter, predictions of what will happen when the Babylonians come in, the Assyrians come in, the Romans come in, the siege that will take place around the cities of Judah and Samaria. And God will predict what will happen when they disobey him. The reason God gives prophecy is not only to warn, but so that when it happens, we'll remember, wow, 
God told us this before it happened. He is God. And that will wake you up to turn back to God so that he can restore you and bring you back to a place of blessing. That you'll know it's God who has spoken. Dr. A. Casey Morrison, who was a professor of the New York Academy of Sciences, gave a little experiment one evening to an audience. He said, with ten pennies in his right pocket, Suppose that I could mark these ten pennies, one through ten, put them in my pocket, take my hands out, and then I'd make a prediction to you as the audience. I would say, I'm about to reach my hand in and select penny marked one. The odds would be one in ten that I could do it. If I reached in, did it, put it down, and you all applauded, it's a great, great thing I could do. And then I say, ladies and gentlemen, now I'm going to reach in my pocket and select Penny number two, mark number two. Now my odds decrease exponentially to one in a hundred. And thus it goes till you get somewhere close to one in ten billion if I could sequentially select pennies one, two, three, four, five, all the way to ten. Now Dr. Morrison said, if I pulled that off and amazed you as my audience, your first inclination would be that it's a trick. You'd say, he did something. He put a little marking on each one so he could feel it. The game is somehow fixed. The idea when God fulfills prophecy is that when the things start coming to pass that God predicted, that we might say, hmm, I think the game is fixed in the sense that we're dealing with a being who knows what will happen before it happens, who has foreknowledge and foresight and can speak what will happen before we even know what's going to happen, before we're born. And so God told Abraham, you and your descendants will be in a foreign land captive for 400 years. They went down to Egypt for 400 years and came out. The Babylonian captivity was predicted for 70 years. After 70 years, they returned. The name of Cyrus was written about by Isaiah the prophet 200 and some odd years before Cyrus was even born on the earth. So that we might go, the game is fixed. God is God. And so there's a tremendous example of this in chapter 28 of uh, Deuteronomy. But not a good transition after lots of blessings. It shall come to pass if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all of his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the country. You see how that's the flip side of the coin that we read last week? If you obey, blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the produce of your land, the increase of your cattle, the offspring of your flocks. Cursed shall you be when you come in, cursed you shall be when you go out. The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, rebuke in all that you set your hand to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. Now the two words are important to note. Destroyed and perish. Shamad and avad in Hebrew. It doesn't mean that you will be obliterated or annihilated, but that you will be crushed. The terminology 
is used in reference to that generation occupying the land at that period of time. If you blow it, that generation will perish in terms of their relationship to the land, and we will see that happen. The generation that forsakes God will eventually be taken captive, be taken out of the land. The covenant will be wavering at that point uh, because the law, remember the law of Moses, is a conditional covenant. The tenure of occupying the land is conditional. The land itself is an unconditional covenant. So eventually they'll come back and occupy the land. But the generation that sins, God pronounces a curse on them. The Lord will make the plague cling to you until he has consumed you from the land which you are going to possess. The Lord will strike you with consumption, with fever, with inflammation, with severe burning fever, with a sword, with a scorching, with mildew. They shall pursue you until you perish. Your heavens, which are over your head, shall be bronze. The earth, which is under you, shall be iron. Speaking of famine conditions, no rain, no fertility in the soil. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you till you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. And you shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. In one sense, that little sentence in a nutshell, has been the history of the relationship of the Jews to people around them. Troublesome. Nations that have attacked Israel in the past, be it Babylon or Assyria or uh, Antiochus Epiphanes and the Syrian troops or, or Rome or Alexander and the Greeks, all noticed that the Jewish nation was the most stubborn group of people they had to contend with. You see, usually when the Greeks would come in and overtake the land, they'd come in with such might, or the Romans would come in with such a better program for the land, for taxation, building roads, providing benefits for the people, that the people would love Rome to conquer them. Sure, take us over, man. We want all of your benefits. Some would even willingly ask Rome to be subject. We want to be subjugated by you, O Rome. But every nation that came to assimilate the Jews into their culture met severe opposition. The Jews were stubborn. They would always say, all of your gods are pagan. We don't like your images in our land. We worship Jehovah or Yahweh God singularly. We will not worship any of your pagan gods, and we will not be involved in any of your practices. So it created a little bit of trouble. Now, it's interesting, if you look at Israel today, what what a precarious position. You've got a nation surrounded on all sides, except the Mediterranean, which is the place all of the people would love to push the Jews. You've got a nation surrounded by enemies on any of their borders, You've got other people who would love to see their destruction, their annihilation, and yet they exist. Very profitably, 
In an advanced culture, they exist. They're troublesome. What are the headlines almost daily somewhere in any newspaper about Israel? It's interesting that population-wise, Israel is about one three-hundredth the size of China. And yet, it has 30 times the amount of headlines given to it than China. Uh, Let's peek ahead for just a moment. Go to uh, Zechariah chapter 12. Keep that verse tucked in uh, the folds of your gray matter for just a moment. Zechariah chapter 12. You shall become troublesome to the kingdoms of the earth. We know that in the last days they will not only become troublesome, but that God will make it so for his purpose. Zechariah chapter 12. The burden of the word of the Lord against Israel. Thus says the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, forms the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of drunkenness to all the surrounding peoples when they lay siege against Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall happen in that day, I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all peoples. All who would heave it away will surely be cut in pieces, though all of the nations of the earth are gathered against it. In that day, says the Lord, I will strike every horse with confusion, its rider with madness. I will open my eyes on the house of Judah. I will strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Look at verse 8. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The one who is feeble among them in that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God and like the angel of the Lord before them. It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Further on in chapter 14 of Zechariah, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the women ravished. Half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move to the north and half toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake. Now we studied the book of Revelation. We saw how the nations of the world will come against Jerusalem and Jesus Christ will return and put his feet on the Mount of Olives. A week and a half ago, I stood on Mount Zion overlooking the Kidron Valley, the Temple Mount on the left, Mount of Olives right in front to the right, and I thought of this whole scenario in my mind's eye, what it would be like to see Jesus putting his footprint on that mountain, watching it split in two, and all of the nations who have made a conspiracy against Jerusalem in the last days to be confounded as Jesus returns to set up his kingdom. But here's a seed thought for you back now in Deuteronomy. You shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Now that's part of a cursing 
that seems to hound them throughout history, but in the end it will become a blessing. Because just as all the nations are ready to annihilate it, that's when their Messiah will return. So I get really excited when I start reading about headlines in the Middle East and the frustration with the peace talks. Not that I'm excited that there's no peace. Don't get me wrong. I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I want there to be issues settled. But I see the day approaching as I see men frustrated, unable to make peace in that region. And the wire's getting thinner every day. And Jesus said, when you start to see these things, look up. Your redemption draws near. So that which is predicted as a curse eventually will turn even in their favor in the end of days. Your carcasses, plural, shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt, with tumors, the scab, with the itch from which you cannot be healed. There were prominent diseases uh, in Egypt. God promises that those diseases that God heretofore protected them from, that they'll be subject to them. Ophthalmia was one. Elephantitis was another one. Severe symptoms accompanied them. Dysentery was another one. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of heart. Now that verse has gotten scholars thinking, what could it possibly mean when it talks about madness and blindness? Because those are symptoms especially when there was no antibiotic, no treatment, uh, that described syphilis. Now, we know syphilis is a sexually transmitted disease. And perhaps, scholars think, this is a prediction of the outcome of Israel who will get involved in the sexual fertility cults of the nations around them. There was the worship of Baal, as we mentioned last week. Here's a depiction of this little god. They looked at this little image while they were having sexual intercourse with prostitutes or male prostitutes, and they would be praying to this image, saying, Oh, Baal, even as fertility is taking place right now between us, will you be faithful to bring fertility to my family, my crops, my land, my animals? And because of the promiscuity involved in the worship system of the Baals and the Ashtoreths, syphilis was rampant among them. And you shall grope at noonday as a blind man gropes in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and plundered continually, and no one shall save you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall lie with her, and you shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not gather its grapes. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes but you shall not eat of it. Your donkey uh, shall be violently taken away from before you and shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies and you shall have no one to rescue them. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people and your eyes shall look and fail with longing for them all day long and there shall be no strength in your hand. A nation whom you have not known that would be a nation other than the ones directly around them, shall eat the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor, and you shall only be oppressed and crushed continually. So you shall be driven mad because of the sight which your eyes shall see. 
This literally happened. The last king of Judah was named Zedekiah. And a horrible thing happened to King Zedekiah. He was captured by the Babylonians, tied up. Zedekiah's sons were brought before him and were killed before his eyes. Imagine a father watching his own sons die a tortuous death at the hands of his enemies. And after his sons were put to death, then they took Zedekiah's eyes. This is under Nebuchadnezzar. And put out Zedekiah's eyes so that the last image that would be in his mind would be that of the death of his sons. Then he was led blind into captivity. Always remembering that the last sight he saw was his enemies, the Babylonians, putting out or um, killing his sons before taking him captive. The Lord will strike you in the knees and on the legs with severe boils, which cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. The Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. There you will serve other gods, wood and stone. Now the Babylonians came and took them captive. The Assyrians took the northern kingdom captive several years before that in 722 B.C. The Romans did the same thing. Verse 37, you shall become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all the nations where the Lord your God will drive you. The curse would be so bad that as a people group, God is saying, you'll, you'll be a saying. You'll be a, a term of derision. I find it interesting that there are people who have in their hearts a hatred, an animosity toward Jewish people. You know, if you ask them why, they, they couldn't give you a good reason. They don't really don't have a good reason. They just, they just don't like Jews. A deep-seated anti-Semitism. I believe it is part of the result of disobedience, but more than that, I really believe it's part of the enemy because God does have a plan for the nation of Israel in the future. The 30th chapter bears out their restoration and anything that God loves and has a plan or a covenant with or for, Satan will attack. And I believe anti-Semitism comes from the pit of hell. And people will say, dirty Jew. Or they'll use it in a slang. What are you trying to Jew me out of this? As a term of derision, a scorn has become a reputation. Very sad. You shall carry much seed out to the field and gather little in, for the locusts shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and tend them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worms shall eat them. A lot of curses, aren't there? You shall have olive trees throughout all of your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall beget sons and daughters. They shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. Locusts shall consume all your trees and the produce of your land. The alien, this is not outer space Roswell types. Don't start thinking, oh, there's... No, that's aliens that are going to land in Israel. The alien who is among you, you sh shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, you shall be the tail. Moreover, 
All these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments, his statutes, which he commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. Now, wouldn't you think that all of the blessings that God had given to them in the past, the promises God had for them a blessing in the present, once they're in the land, they've crossed over the Jordan, they're inheriting it, they're enjoying all of the produce, that all of that blessing would cause their hearts to move toward obedience? Wouldn't you think that they would say, God, you've been so good. I can't help but serve you and love you even more. However, when you are in a place of abundance, it's sometimes more dangerous. In fact, I think it's almost always more dangerous than when you don't have that. When there is an abundance, when there's lacking, and you just have to trust and cling to God. You come to a place of abundance, and things get a little bit easier now, and you sort of rest in your laurels, and you start forgetting the God who gave you those things. It's a danger. And then you start looking back and rewriting your history, revising your own history. Now, I really do see a parallel between ancient Israel and modern America in the sense that when our forefathers landed on this country on Plymouth Rock, they didn't have free enterprise running through their veins. It wasn't all done in the name of free enterprise, but in the name of freedom from the dictates of the state so that they could worship God according to what they felt God put in their heart. They wanted to serve God without the state intervening like they had back in England. And there was a struggle. But even people from England and France like Alexis de Tocqueville and G.K. Chesterton who visited our country G.K. Chesterton noted in one of his famous papers about America, he said, America is the only nation on earth founded on a creed, and that creed is clearly and theologically set out in their Declaration of Independence. And he was referring to the second paragraph. We hold these truths to be self-evidence, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that are among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, in our abundance, we're rewriting history. The pen of the revisionists is changing that which this nation is founded on and saying it's because it was founded on free enterprise. The great god of mammon has done this. And moving us to a mindset of secular humanism rather than spirituality that this nation was really founded on. And so God is predicting rather than serving the Lord your God for the abundance of all these things, you didn't serve him. Therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and in need of all things, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck till he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation, now it's will, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand. It's interesting that Babylon was depicted as an eagle. And it's interesting that when Daniel had a vision in the night that God gave him, 
He saw a lion, and attached to the lion were wings as of an eagle, speaking of this speedy flight from one place to the other. Then it's also interesting that Rome bore the insignia of the royal eagle on their banners wherever they marched. No doubt, when Judah saw over their walls the Babylonians marching toward Jerusalem with the insignia of the winged lion, the eagle, or the Romans coming in years later, 70 A.D. and before, they looked over, maybe remember this, and thought, this is it. This is it. It's come true. And so the prediction that they would be taken from a a nation afar. A nation of fierce countenance, which does not respect the elderly, nor show favor to the young. And they shall eat in the increase of your livestock and the produce of your land until you are destroyed. They shall not leave you grain or new wine or oil or the increase of your cattle or the offspring of your flocks until they have destroyed you. Now, in these next few verses, we get a description of what a siege was like. You know, today when you have a war, it's pretty antiseptic in the sense that it's quick. We have incredible weapons of mass destruction. The Gulf War, I mean, look how massive and how quick that was. It was just these strategic strikes and, uh, you know, for a period of weeks, and then it was, it was over. In ancient times, you would besiege a city over months, months, even years. And so you'd come in, and you'd build a wall, a siege wall around the city of protection, and you'd have camps around the siege walls so that nobody could escape. If they escaped over their walls, they'd have to go over your wall, and there'd be people stationed at your wall to kill them. Then, since people lived within walled cities, but all of their flocks and all of their uh, crops were outside the wall, you would take over because you're now surrounding the city and uh, you take over their food supplies and now they're in the city starving to death, relying upon only uh, what food they have taken and what water they have taken within the city walls. And so it's a long, slow starvation and dying of thirst. Now, I'm going to show you a couple of pictures to get the idea. These are the modern-day walls of Jerusalem. They're Turkish walls. They're modern. They're only about 1,000 years old. Uh, there are some parts of the wall that date back a couple thousand years and even before that. But the idea is if you have people living on the other side of this wall inside, you've you got to get to them somehow. You just don't walk right up and knock on the door and say, here, we're here to besiege you. Uh, they'll pour oil down or rocks or whatever. And so you've got to get through those walls. So you build your encampment around the city, you take over the vines, you take over the livestock, and now they don't have fresh supply of food. And then you, next you have to breach these walls. So usually what is done is siege works or siege machines are built. Oftentimes a ramp is uh, brought up to the wall and then uh, uh, if you can see this is a battering ram. Inside were men. Uh, it's a massive device that is stationed at the wall and this huge uh, ram, a chunk of wood, poles of wood tied together with leather would swing back and forth and the more it swings the more momentum you get until it can poke through the walls of the city and once you can breach the walls men can get through it. The next thing to do is since you're looking up, you're down on the bottom looking up at people on the walls, 
is you got to get a lot of the fortifications in the city. And so catapults were built and stones were hurled from beneath and outside the walls to the inside to remove the troops uh, from the walls so that you could get in. That's a picture of Masada that I'll mention in just a minute as we get through here. All right, with that in mind, let's see how this is described. Verse 52, They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust. He's predicting there's going to come a time in your prosperity, in your abundance, you're going to look around and go, look at this great nation that has been built by our ingenuity and our free enterprise. Look at our massive walls. They'll protect us. God will say, you're trusting in those walls? Watch what happens. Shall come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land, which the Lord your God has given you. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters, whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you. The man among you who is sensitive and very refined will be hostile toward his brother, toward the wife of his bosom, toward the rest of his children whom he leaves behind, so that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children whom he will eat, because he has left nothing in the siege and and, uh, he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you in all your gates. The tender and delicate woman among you would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicacies and sensitivity will refuse to the husband of her bosom and to the son and daughter. Her placenta, which comes out from between her feet and, and her children whom she bears, she will eat them secretly for lack of all things in the siege and desperate straits in which her enemy shall distress you at all your gates. God is saying, this is what's going to happen. You're going to disobey me. You're going to forsake me. You're going to start worshiping other gods. You're going to start trusting in yourself, your own capabilities, your own capacities. And you'll be fine. You'll have beautiful cities with great walls. But then your enemies will come from afar. First of all, they're going to build those walls around the city. And they're going to start taking your flocks and your oil supplies and your water supplies and your food supplies. And then you're going to have to rely upon the food that you have on the inside of the walls. But you're going to run out. And you'll be starving. And day after day, you'll hear their taunts outside the walls as they are hammering to get in. And aware on you, you'll be discouraged and you'll be starving to death. And God predicts it's going to get so bad, you will be even eating your own sons and daughters. Now, that has got to be the lowest possible form of living that there is. You say, well, that could never really happen. It's interesting in the book of 2 Kings, I believe, chapter 6. Ben-Hadad of Syria has attacked Samaria. The famine has gotten so bad, it says a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver. And one pint of dove droppings will sold for five shekels of silver. That's bad. Now, I remember as a kid, my parents would feed me some odd things and try to say, oh, these are special foods. These are delicacies. I remember the night they put cow brains on the table. Now, hey, a (laughs) 10-year-old... 
convincing him that those are delicacies is a long shot. And they knew this, so they just said, you know, here's your food. And it looked like scrambled eggs. And so um, I started eating them. Now, it's interesting. Some of you have gross looks on your face right now. And some of you are going, hmm, yeah. And, you know, I said, what are these things? And my mom said, oh, they're just eggs. And then my brother let the cat out of the way. He said, it's cow brains. And I said, that's it. I'm not eating, eating them. And my parents, oh, but they're delicacies. I don't care if they're delicacies. I ain't eating them. The head of a donkey. Hey, it's on sale. Only 80 shekels of silver. Oh, I, listen, down at Smith's, I got this great, you know, pint of dove dung for eight shekels of silver. Wow. Get two at that price. The famine overtook the entire city. One day, the king of Samaria is walking on the walls, and she, he hears a woman crying out, King, help! King, help! And he says very lethargically, Listen, if God can't help you, where can I give you help from? From the wine press? From the threshing floor? They're dried up. And he said, what, what's the problem? He was curious. The woman said, This woman promised that if we would eat my son today, that we would eat her son the next day. And so I killed my son and we ate him yesterday. But she has hidden her son and I'm hungry. At that, the king tore his garments and he said, May God do so to me and more if by the end of the day I don't have Elijah's head taken off his body. Because Elijah predicted that this would happen. There would be a famine in Samaria because the northern kingdom had turned from God. And this is now the result of that famine. If you do not carefully observe all the words of the law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring upon you and your descendants extraordinary plagues, great and prolonged plagues, serious and prolonged sickness. Moreover, he will bring back on you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Also every sickness, every plague, which is not written in the book of this law, will the Lord bring upon you until you are destroyed. And you shall be left few in number, whereas you were as the stars of heaven in multitude, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. When Judah was taken captive into Babylon, and when the northern kingdom of Samaria was taken captive into Assyria, they made it their practice to leave the few sick, poor, feeble folks to just sort of tend the land and maintain it. They left them few in number. And it shall be just as the Lord rejoiced over you to do good and multiply you, so the Lord will rejoice over you to destroy you and bring you to nothing, and you shall be plucked from off the land which you go to possess. Then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. There you shall serve other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, an anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. In the morning you shall say, Oh, that it were evening, 
At evening you shall say, Oh, that it were morning, because of the fear which terrifies your heart, and because of the sight which your eyes see. And the Lord will take you back to Egypt in ships, by the way of which I said to you, You shall never see it again, and there you shall be offered for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but no one shall buy you. I'm glad we're finally getting into chapter 29. Unfortunately, we'll have to save that for next week. But this is where the covenant is renewed and the blessings are reviewed. After the severe warning, now Moses will say, cling to God with all of your heart. Cling to God with all of your heart. Now, the description that we have just read, as gross as it is, has been the history of the attacks, whether it's Assyria, Babylon, the Seleucid Empire, Greece, Romans, they have besieged the city. And some of these things that we have read took place in 70 AD when 1.3 million Jews were killed in Jerusalem, uh, 586 BC when the Babylonians overtook Judah and Jerusalem with three sieges, 722 BC when the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom. These are the series of events that happened. Because of this, in 70 AD, when the temple in Jerusalem fell to the Romans and Jews were killed, a group of Jewish zealots fled to this place, the place of Masada down by the Dead Sea, which was Herod's hangout, one of many. It was a virtual city on top of a mountain. It was a great place to be in the winter, but you don't want to be there in the summer. Well, they were there for a few years after the fall of Jerusalem until the Romans came in and built, as you can see, the remains here of the walls and the encampments, started camping around Masada and built this wall all the way around the mountain of Masada and just stayed there so that nobody could go out or come in and waited it out and waited it out. And eventually, they built huge siege works. They built a huge ramp. You can still see it today. And put that battering ram that I just showed you in the catapult and, and started working their way up. It took a couple years to do it. The 10th Legion of Rome was very, very persistent. And orders came from Rome, whatever it takes, get Masada. The zealots, under a guy by the name of Eleazar Ben-Yair, their Jewish leader, knew what would happen if they would surrender to the Romans. Already they looked down and saw their fellow brothers, fellow Jewish slaves, being tortured, killed, beaten, as they used the slaves to build the ramp and make the catapults. And they even took live people and catapulted them up against the walls and splattered them. Jewish brothers. And they said, look, we know what will happen. If we surrender to the Romans, or if we let them take us over, our wives will be raped, our children will be slaves, we as men will be killed and we will, or be taken slaves. We can't let this happen. And so a night came. The ramp had been built. They knew that the next morning or during the night, the wall would be overturned and the Romans would make it through the wall and overtake Masada. They knew that the Romans would take over their stronghold the next day. What do you do? That evening, Eleazar Ben-Yair assembled the people, 900 and some odd people, together, 
and gave them a speech, gave the men the speech, and then they were to take the speech and and kind of recite it to the the women and the children. And I just want to close tonight with this speech and uh, close the evening off with an application. This is the night before Masada fell. My loyal followers, he said, long ago we resolved to serve neither the Romans nor anyone else but the Lord our God alone, who is the only and true righteous Lord of men. Now the time has come that bids us prove our determination by our deeds. At such a time we must not disgrace ourselves. Hitherto we have never submitted to slavery, even when it brought no danger with it. We must not choose slavery now, and with it the penalties that will mean the end of everything if we fall alive into the hands of the Romans. For we who were the first of all to revolt and shall be the last to break off the struggle. I think it is God who has given us this privilege. And we can die nobly and as free men, unlike others who are unexpectedly defeated. In our case, it is evident that daybreak will end our resistance, but we are free to choose an honorable death with our loved ones. This our enemies cannot prevent, however earnestly they may pray to take us alive, nor can we defeat them in battle. Let our wives die unabused. Our children die without knowledge of slavery. And after that, let us do each other an ungrudging kindness, preserving our freedom as a glorious winding sheet. But first, let our possessions and the whole fortress go up in flames. It will be a bitter blow to the Romans. That I know, to find our persons beyond their reach and nothing left for them to loot. One thing only, let us spare our food. It will bear witness that when we are dead, that we perish not through lack, but because we resolved to do so at the beginning, we chose death rather than slavery. If only we had died before seeing the sacred city utterly destroyed by enemy hands, the holy sanctuary so impiously uprooted. But since an honorable ambition deluded us into thinking that perhaps we should succeed in avenging her of her enemies... Now all hope is fled, abandoning us to our fate. Let us at once choose death with honor and do the kindest thing we can for ourselves, our wives, our children, while it is still possible to show ourselves any kindness. After all, we were born to die, we and those that we brought into the world. This even the luckiest must face. But outrage, slavery, and the sight of our wives being led to shame with our children, these are evils to which... Man is subject by laws of nature. Men undergo them through their own cowardice if they have chanced to forestall them by death and will not take it. We are very proud of our courage, so we have revolted against Rome. Now in the final stages, we have offered to spare our lives. They have offered to spare our lives, and we have turned down the offer. Is anyone too blind to see how furious they will be if they take us alive? Pity the young whose bodies are strong enough to survive the prolonged torture. Pity the not-so-young whose old frames would break under such ill usage. A man shall see his wife violently carried off. He will hear the voice of his child crying, Daddy, when his own hands are fettered. Come, while our hands are free and can hold a sword, let them do a noble service. Let us die unenslaved by our enemies and leave this world as free men in the company with our wives and children. That night, lots were chosen. The men went in after this speech. 
Each head of the household killed his wife and children with the edge of the sword. And then lots were chosen as to what one man would kill the other men, slit their throats, and then eventually kill himself. So that when the Romans came in the next day, they would find 967 Jewish men, women, old people, children, who had killed themselves rather than be slaves, be taken to Rome. The fortress went up in flames. The food was spared. And thus they refused to submit to the Romans. Every year at Masada, officers are taken on top of this hill and are sworn into the Israeli army. And they all cry out toward the end of this ceremony by fire at night, Masada shall never fall again. That's a background on a little bit of where the Jews are today after their history, something that has been their history throughout many generations. With that in mind, Masada shall never fall again. They're making a statement. We realize we're surrounded by enemies. We realize the Islamic Mujahideen, the PLO and others, would love to push us into the Mediterranean and have us compromise, and, and they may even attack us. But we're never going to let what happened to Masada happen again. We're not going to be forced into a situation where we're just going to collapse and kill ourselves. We're going to go down fighting anyone who comes against us. And so, with great patriotism, they defend their country to this day. That's the mindset of one of the players in the Middle East conflict because of their past conflict. And so, remember in the Gulf War, when Iraq was shooting missiles into Israel, the United States went ballistic. We said, oh no, what do we do? Do we start talking to Iraq? No, talk to Israel. Because if Israel retaliates, Iraq will be nothing, toast. I mean, they're going to go nuts. They're gonna just going to wipe everybody out. And so we got up in arms because we thought, Israel's being attacked. We better start negotiating with Israel and just you know, shooting the missiles out of the sky because you, know, you start attacking that nation. We know with their capability of nuclear weapons what that could mean. So in the future, as you see the peace treaties, the t treaty that's out on the table, and you see the nations being gathered together against Israel, know the mindset of Israel, but also know the mindset of God, that once God brings them back into the land, which he has, that God has a plan now to reach out to them, and then eventually, in the end of times, defend them. So the blessings and the cursings were given to the nation of Israel. And now in chapter 29, we'll continue next week as they rehearse their law. And Moses says, spare yourself, you know, uh, these, uh, these miseries. Even though God had revealed to them that it's going to happen, it was the idea of start obeying God. Father, we now turn our hearts toward you. And we pray, Father, that we would respond to your promises. We would respond to your blessings. And rather than being in our abundance and say that we're the ones that have, by our own prowess and abilities, caused this nation to be what it is, we recognize, Lord, that you have made it what it is. That our forefathers landed on this continent so that they might have freedom to worship you, not freedom from worshiping you. 
And Lord, in the midst of revisionism in our country, I pray, Lord, that we would cling to the very tenets that have made it great. Even though, yes, this country made very many mistakes in the beginning and others were tortured and persecuted, even in the name of God. We realize, Lord, that what we have, we have because of who you are. And Father, I pray that we as a nation would turn our hearts back toward you in repentance and humility and obedience. And Father, you'd bring revival to this nation. You'd bring blessing of spiritual wisdom to this nation. And Lord, let it begin with us. Let it begin with people in this room who perhaps haven't turned their lives over to the God who gave them breath. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 In Jesus' name.